Man, you thought Descartes was going to blow your mind. Just wait until we get into Hume. So, Hume is writing about 100 years after Descartes, and the world hasn't changed all that much, but where Hume is writing is kind of as important as when Hume is writing. Um, we talked a bit about Descartes writing in, like, the sort of crazy panic existential dread of the Catholic Church. Um, they were looking at Galileo and freaking out and saying to themselves, oh, we have to shut down all this science crap before it overthrows our religion. And Descartes is like, no, we can have science and religion too, guys. It's great. Let's all be careful about what we say we think we know. Hume is writing in Scotland in the mid-18th century. Again, kind of at the end of this whole modern period before the German idealists very much take over. Um... And while, on the one hand, he has a very similar project to Descartes, he wants to examine our consciousness, he wants to examine the way that we think, the way that knowledge works, he wants to question and critique a lot of the things that we think that we know, know. Um, nonetheless, his actual approach is going to be completely different, and he will be critiquing Descartes regularly throughout his project. Um, but this is the most difficult part of Hume. Like, the first chunk of the reading, the stuff that you probably read before listening to this lecture, um, the first half, like, book, or sections two to five, this is, this is the bulk of Hume's whole philosophy. The rest of the book is largely devoted to Hume, like, applying his system. And this is a system. Um, like, even more than most of the other philosophers we've run into, even more than Descartes' like, very methodical approach to skepticism and like, systematic doubt, Hume is building a structure, an understanding of the mind that is systematic. Um, and it will both be very compelling and very skeptical at the same time. But let's jump into it, because there's a lot to cover here. Um, so the first thing we need to do with Hume is get the terms down. Um, once again, this is the first text we're reading in this class that was originally written in English, so congratulations, all of the terms are exactly the same terms that we would use today, um, except for the fact that, again, this is the 18th century, so the meaning has shifted. Hooray for semantic drift. Um, so the first distinction we definitely need to get down is this distinction between ideas and impressions. Ideas and impressions. I'm going to try and repeat this because I don't have like a board to write on. So if you are sitting there taking notes, which I highly recommend, ideas and impressions. Um, the distinction that Hume is making here is that impressions are sensed things, stuff that we experience directly. Ideas are the things that we conjure in our mind, usually recollecting impressions. Um, now, ideas are what we're dealing with in the same sense that we're dealing with ideas in Descartes. Ideas could be any number of things. It could be like, I remember being warm, I remember a hamburger, I can imagine a dragon, I can think of God. Like, all of these are ideas for Hume. They're stuff that we conjure in our consciousness, they're entities that we, like, imagine have a thingness to them. Um, impressions, on the other hand, are immediate. They happen right now, in the moment. Um, the word impression, like, we think now of, like, making a good first impression, like, impressing someone, um, being, you know, desirable to them, um, making, making, like, a, a good, uh, 
making them think well of us, let's put it that way. Um, but what I want to stress with Hume is that he's using it in the older sense, um, which is, you know, not far removed from the sense that we use it in, but we frequently lose track of that. Like, he's thinking in a very concrete sense of how you press something. Um, specifically, like, in the 18th century and for a long time beforehand, when you sent correspondence to someone, like if you were going to mail a letter, um, you would seal the letter with wax to ensure that, like, they, that it hadn't been opened before the person who was supposed to get it received it. So when you received a letter, you would have this letter and there would be a wax stamp on the back. And then you would break the wax when you open the letter and you know that you are the first person to actually break, or to break the seal to read the letter. Um... And when you, when you did this, when you were sending a letter, you would take a glob of wax, like usually you'd have a candle that you were writing to help you see, and you'd dip some wax on it, and then you'd take your ring, which had a fancy design in it, like a signet ring, and you would press your ring into the wax so it would leave a mark. And when you put, picked your ring back up, the mark would be there. And importantly, especially for, like, official correspondence, like if the king is sending a letter or if some fancy minister or lord is sending a letter, um, they would do this to ensure not only nobody had read my letter before it got to the person who's supposed to read it, but also you know for sure that it is me, the lord, the king, who is sending the letter. Because only the lord, only the king, has that particular signet ring. That symbol that you see impressed in the wax, that's unique original like a fingerprint it's a guarantee to the recipient that this has been sent by the person who you think it's from and that nobody has read it in the meantime um but the important thing here is this impression the fact that when hume says impression he talks about it as a passive kind of thing something that happens to you you are the wax when you feel hot or cold, when you fall in love for the first time, when you get hit by a rock and start to bleed. All of these are impressions. They are forced upon you. They are pressed onto you. Um, and all you can do is like react and take the shape of whatever it is. Importantly for Hume, these impressions, which again are immediate, they happen at that moment. Like I currently have the impression of looking at my computer screen and seeing my recording software. I have the impression of hearing my own voice. I have the impression of looking outside and seeing a bird swoop down from the neighboring apartment complex. Um, this is all immediate. Um, and for Hume, it is right now. Like, I can, you know, finish doing this lecture and then sit in my easy chair and say to myself, wow, that was a really good lecture. I remember how well I was speaking at while I was recording it. Um, that will, like, I can conjure that idea. I can remind myself of the events that are happening, but will never be as vivacious or important or urgent or, like, even as exciting as the immediate impressions that I'm receiving right now. Like, I can imagine myself speaking, but unless I speak at that time, it will not be as immediate or important as the actual act of speaking right now. Think of it like this. Today it is 32 degrees outside. Once again, I'm recording these lectures in advance. It's March 26th. We just had our first, uh, first Q&A session yesterday in my time-lapsed thing. Um, like... 
it's really cold today is what I'm getting at. And if I go outside to do the recycling, which I'm supposed to do, you know, this is the one task that my wife gave me today. Um, if I go outside, I can sit and think about being warm all I want while I am carrying the recycling to the recycling bins. And it will not make me one bit warmer. Like, I can imagine sitting down by a fireside or sunning at the beach, and I will not make myself actually feel warm. Feeling cold while I'm outside in 32 degree weather will totally trump whatever idea I may have, whatever recollection I may conjure, of actually feeling warm. You cannot make yourself feel warm when you are actually feeling cold. Now granted, there's arguments here, like especially in Eastern philosophy, you'll hear people talk about mind over matter, and like, I can make myself do whatever I want, it's just about mental control, and that's true to some degree, but it's also not what Hume is interested in talking about here. Um, what he wants to stress is that impressions are more powerful than ideas, they are immediate, where ideas can like exist over a long period of time, and most importantly for Hume, they are primary. All ideas for Hume are based on impressions. Impressions, those sensations, those immediate experiences, that is the basis for literally everything we call knowledge. Literally all of it. Whatever you think of, be it something abstract like a triangle or love, be it something imaginary like a dragon or a unicorn, or something concrete like a hamburger or a bird, or something that you've never experienced before but have seen pictures of like Victoria Falls, whatever you think of, whatever ideas you have, at some level they are grounded in an impression, an immediate experience. And this is the first place where Hume is departing from Descartes. Now, Descartes stresses that most of his knowledge is based on experience. Like, that's one of the things that he admits early on. As much as Descartes is suspicious of his senses and of his experiences, um, he ultimately admits that, like, 99.9% .9 of what we call knowledge is based on those same experiences. He is looking for the exception, since he knows he can't trust his experiences, which is where he comes up with, you know, I believe that I exist, I believe that God exists, so on and so forth. Hume, on the other hand, is not even willing to let that one go. For Hume, there is no knowledge outside of experience. There is no, like, idea that is not based at some point in our experience. Even truths of math, like 2 plus 2 equals 4, that triangles have angles that add up to 180 degrees, that is all based on experience for Hume, although we will come back to that momentarily. Um, and importantly, too, he stresses that like even the idea of God is something that we conjure using experience. We do not have this idea of God that is like directly implanted in us from God, existing before we have experiences. It is not some a priori idea. By a priori here I mean before experience, that's contrasted with a posteriori, after experience. We'll come back to that as well. Um, but notice on page 839, he comes out like guns blazing against Descartes here. Um, he stresses in the second paragraph the same thing that Descartes stresses. Though our thought seems to possess this unbounded liberty, we shall find upon a nearer examination that it is really confined within very narrow limits, and that all this creative power of the mind amounts to no more than the faculty of compounding, transposing, augmenting, or diminishing the materials afforded us by the senses and experience. When we think of a golden mountain, we only join two consistent 
ideas, gold and mountain, with which we were formerly acquainted. Descartes says the exact same thing. We cannot imagine a dragon from whole cloth. We do not just, like, invent stuff we've never experienced before. We combine ideas that we have about the world and create new ideas. For Tolkien, he can say, I imagine a green sun. We can talk about dragons because we can imagine a lizard with bat wings. Um, Hume uses this example of the Golden Mountain. Both of them are in agreement there. But where Hume diverts is in the next paragraph. To prove this, the two following arguments will, I hope, be sufficient. First, when we analyze our thoughts or ideas, however compounded or sublime, we always find that they resolve themselves into such simple ideas as were copied from a precedent feeling or sentiment. Even those ideas which at first view seem the most wide of this origin are found upon a nearer scrutiny to be derived from it. The idea of God, as meaning an infinitely intelligent, wise, and good being, arises from reflecting on the operations of our own mind and augmenting, without limit, those qualities of goodness and wisdom. He is making a direct attack on Meditation 3 here, where Descartes says that the idea of God must have come from God because we cannot have, or we don't have any experience of perfection in any sense. Hume says, no, that's not how that works. We can imagine, we can hypothesize a stronger person than me, and a stronger person than that, and a stronger person than that, and so on and so forth, forever, infinitely, until we come at the idea of an inf infinite being, a being with infinite strength, with infinite power, with infinite intelligence. If we combine all these ideas together, we get God, which means that we can create the idea of God for Hume. Importantly, in contrast to Descartes, who says we can't get the idea from anywhere, we must have perfection before we can understand imperfection, Hume says, no, we can get to perfection from imperfection if we just imagine a better and a better and a better and a better and a better, all the way to the point that we actually end up at infinity or perfection or whatever we want to call it. So there is your first critique on Descartes and your probably strongest critique on Meditation 3's proof of the existence of God. Yes, we can imagine a God because we can imagine a continuum of power, of strength, of intelligence, and we can imagine something at the end of it. That's possible for Hume. We can hypothesize God in that case. Now, whether or not Hume is an atheist, we're going to have to come back to, both here and elsewhere. Like, this is going to be an issue we're going to run into a lot with Hume. And honestly, it's not one I can successfully resolve. Um, Hume's religiousness is very ambiguous, up to and including his death. Um, he has an entire uh, dialogue on the subject of religion, which I read in some of my other sections of philosophy. Um... It's fascinating, and it's largely inconclusive. So we're just going to have to follow along and see what he comes up with here, because, again, it's not 100% clear. This is not going to be a case of Descartes, you know, just straight out arguing, God exists, everything in my philosophy is based on it. Hume is going to seriously question everything that we know about God, and yet not give us a definite conclusion that God does not exist. But we'll come back to that as well. Now... There are a couple of exceptions that Hume entertains, but the important thing to take away here is this rule. All ideas are based on impressions. Impressions are immediate sensations, immediate experiences. They are vivacious, they are urgent, they are overpowering. Um, ideas, on the other hand, are much more faint 
and they're secondary. They come from our impressions. And importantly, at the end of this section, he stresses that this is actually one of the sources of error in philosophy. And this is something that he's going to come back to. He says, here, therefore, is a proposition which not only seems in itself simple and intelligible, but if a proper use were made of it, might render every dispute equally intelligible and banish all that jargon which has so long taken possession of metaphysical reasonings and drawn disgrace upon them. He notices that metaphysics is largely bound up in these bad terms, words that don't actually mean anything. When Anselm makes his big fancy definition, by God, I understand that being than which no greater thing can be thought. When Descartes says, I imagine God to be perfect, Hume is seriously questioning these terms. What do you mean than which no greater thing can be thought? What do you mean perfect? How do you know that these words aren't just empty terms with no actual referent, that they're referring to something that doesn't actually exist, that you are just playing word games here? What he stresses is all ideas, especially abstract ones, are naturally faint and obscure. The mind has but a slender hold of them. They are apt to be confounded with other resembling ideas, and when we have often employed any term, though without a distinct meaning, we are apt to imagine that it has a determinate idea annexed to it. On the contrary, all impressions, that is, all sensations, either outward or inward, are strong and vivid. The limits between them are more exactly determined, nor is it easy to fall into any error or mistake with regard to them. He's saying... Our impressions, our direct experiences, they do have concrete value. They have clear limits. We understand them much better. When we start talking about big abstract ideas, when we say perfection, when we say God, when we say any of these big terms like Plato would use, piety or goodness or justice, um, we are basically committing ourselves to some fuzzy logic because the concept itself must necessarily be fuzzy. It, if we are going to talk concretely about a thing, it has to be based in an impression. So what he stresses here is when we entertain, therefore, any suspicions that a philosophical term is employed without any meaning or idea, as is but too frequent, we need but inquire from what impression is that supposed idea derived. And if it is impossible to assign any, this will serve to confirm our suspicion. If you cannot point to a specific impression, if you cannot point to a specific experience, your idea is bullshit. It does not mean anything. It is empty. It is insubstantial. If you say, I believe in a perfect being, and Hume comes up to you and says, what do you mean by perfect? And you answer, the being than which no greater can be thought, he'll be like, no. Show me the money, show me the impression, show me where your idea of perfection is based. He will drag you down and say, okay, here's the real deal. You can imagine this being being smarter than this being, and therefore you can hypothesize a being smarter than all of these beings. If you say that humans have limited intelligence, you can postulate a being with unlimited intelligence by saying, oh, it, what if someone is just the smartest of all beings? That's an empty concept. It is something conjured without a corresponding impression. It is an abstraction only. All right, so there's our first major distinction, impressions and ideas. 
Our second major distinction is in section three, the association of ideas. And Hume doesn't spend a whole lot of time on this. He doesn't want to. He's got a lot to do as, again, like I'm racing forward with this, indicating how urgent all of this is. Here in the association of ideas, he identifies only three relationships between ideas. The whole of logic for Hume is based on one of these three principles, either resemblance, contiguity or cause and effect resemblance by which we mean like a thing looks like each other or a thing sounds like another thing if you have a picture of a friend of yours you will naturally imagine the friend of yours when you look at the picture um if you live in a huge complex with a lot of houses and all of the houses look the same then by imagining one house you might get confused with some of the other houses if you're looking for a particular house um you can get from one idea to the next by the fact that they resemble each other i might think about my favorite movies and think of like oh i really like star wars i also really like other science fiction space operas like valerian um or mortal engines or guardians of the galaxy these things resemble one another talking about one will naturally incline you to talk about and think about the others so that's our first relationship the second is contiguity that's sort of like closeness in time or place so he uses the example of like an apartment um, for example, like if I tell you about my apartment, I will very naturally sort of talk about my neighbors. So for example, when we were talking about Descartes, I gave you all of these examples about my neighbor who may or may not smoke pot and set off the fire alarm. I could tell you about my neighbor who lives downstairs and gets upset when we like make a lot of noise. Um, by thinking about my apartment, it is you are naturally inclined to think about my neighbors, the ones nearby. Likewise, if you think about, like, any object in space, you will likely think about the other objects related in time or space. If I start talking about the original Star Wars, you will think about The Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, the prequels, the sequels, all of that stuff. Um, they all have a relationship to one another that it is easy to get from one to the next. Um... So those are two of our principles, but honestly, Hume isn't terribly interested in either resemblance or contiguity. These are things that we are mostly going to be talking about in terms of relations of ideas, stuff like number, stuff like size or shape, um, which isn't really exciting as far as Hume is concerned. Um, what Hume is really keen to point out here, what he really wants to talk about, what we will spend most of the rest of our Hume discussion talking about, is this third relation of idea, cause and effect. Again, this is a very basic concept. Like, if I come in sick to school one day, you will ask me, how did I get sick? Where did I caught it? Did I catch it? Especially now that we're all panicking about potentially getting this life-threatening illness. Um, if I am wounded, you're going to ask me, how did I get hurt? Um, I hope. Um, anytime that we talk about like any event that occurs, we're usually interested in the events that caused it. What we are currently under quarantine, why are we under quarantine? Well, there is this disease. Where did the disease come from? What, why are we unprepared for it? These are the sorts of questions that you can expect to ask and field um, when we talk about this. Um, we are interested in what events precede and bring about the next set of events. So again, first distinction, 
Impressions and ideas. Impressions, immediate, vivacious, primary, ideas, secondary, less vivid, and uh, can be recalled at any time. Three connections between them. Resemblance, similarity, contiguity, sort of connection in place and time, cause and effect, connection by means of this, quote, causality. Um, but this is where things are going to get real dicey. So, like, if you... I hope that we've got all this part down, because this is where things are going to get screwy. Um, now, we've got this... these early distinctions clear. We've got the two kinds of ideas, ideas and impressions, three associations between them, resemblance, contiguity, cause and effect. Now we need to talk about the two kinds of reasoning altogether. Um, and again, Hume has one that he's much more interested in talking about than the other. The first kind he talks about, literally for just the first paragraph of section four, part one, is relations of ideas. This is math. Like, everything that Descartes was talking about in the meditations with regard to, like, I think, therefore I am, the idea of God being a thing that exists, generally, we'll come back to that. And, of course, geometry, algebra, anything that relies not on the existence of objects, but the relation of their definitions, that's uh, relations of ideas for Hume. Um, 3 times 5 is equal to the half of 30 is the example he uses. 2 plus 2 equals 4. Once you understand what 2 is and what 4 is, you can understand that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Once you understand what 3, 5, and 30 are, as well as hopefully 15, you can understand that 3 times 5 is half of 30. This is valuable information, a kind of idea and knowledge, but it is also not relevant to reality. Remember when Descartes made that distinction between um, ideas as like stuff that just floats around in your head and is non-judgmental, like I have an idea of dragons is not a true or false statement. It is not like right or wrong, but saying dragons are in whales, they exist, they are out there and in a specific place, that's a judgment. That for Hume is a matter of fact. Relations of ideas are just ideas. They have no reality. They have no intrinsic value, right or wrong. Matters of fact are statements about reality, about the world. And as a result, they imply a judgment in Descartes' language, and they can be wrong. When you say, um, there is a triangle outside my door you could be wrong about that. Maybe somebody moved it, or maybe it's not actually a triangle, or maybe it's any number of other things. Um, but importantly for Hume, whenever we make claims about matters of fact, he, we are essentially going to talk about things that are not in the realm of the impossible or necessary. Um, you'll remember a while back we drew that little chart where it's like possibility as opposed to impossibility. Possibility are things that can happen, and possibilities are things that can't happen. And then necessary as opposed to contingent. Necessary are things that must happen. Um, contingent things are things that could not happen. Um, things that could potentially be otherwise. What Hume is going to assert here is that literally all matters of fact are contingent that they could all be otherwise, that they could all not be the case. And the example he uses is that the sun will rise tomorrow. 
Now, we generally assume that the sun is going to rise tomorrow, and we can say, yes, the sun will absolutely rise tomorrow. It will necessarily rise tomorrow. It must rise tomorrow. Or even, I know the sun will rise tomorrow. But importantly for Hume, he wants to stress there's nothing logically contradictory about the fact that the sun will not rise tomorrow. There is nothing in logic that says tomorrow there will be no sunrise. Instead, all of our reasoning about tomorrow's sunrise will be based in cause and effect. Now let me back up here, because I suspect I've already lost you. So I want to like make a couple more examples before we like get too far along here. Um, take, for example, one of like the key principles and laws that we're all familiar with, the law of gravity. Like, yes, this is the same principle that informs the sunrise and only kind of serves our purpose even better here, but even in a more basic sense. Like, right now I've got a bunch of, like, crap on my desk because I'm a giant slob. Like, there's a bunch of bills and papers and stuff that I should probably attend to at some point, but I'm way too busy, so who cares? I've got, like, tchotchkes and souvenirs. Like, I've got this great little letter opener from Spain. I've also got, like, little figurines. Like, I've got a Mewtwo figurine and a Twilight Sparkle figurine, and I've got, like, this little... What is this? A 19, 1975 Dodge Challenger Matchbox car. I'm not sure why I have this here, but whatever. It will suit our purposes because it is especially robust. I am holding the Matchbox car in my hand. I am now holding it over the floor, like away from my desk. If I let go, what will happen to it? Pause. We all know it's going to fall, right? Like, if I am holding the Matchbox car over the floor and I drop the Matchbox car, obviously it's going to fall to the ground. Here, I'll do it, just to show you. Alright, I hope you heard the noise. I think so. I can see the little report. Um, we all knew that it was going to fall, right? Why is it going to fall? Gravity. But here's the trick. Like, do this at home. It's time for some home experimentation. Pick some random piece of crap off your desk, off your floor, whatever you're doing. I'm sure you've got, like, something around that you can just, like, afford to drop on the floor. Pick it up, hold it above the floor, and before you drop it, be sure to look for the gravity. Like, I want you to see the gravity this time. I don't want you to just, like, drop it and assume that there's gravity that's pulling it down. I want you to look at the gravity. All right, I'm going to drop my Matchbox car again, and when I do, you drop yours too. All right, on three. One, two. All right. So, I don't know about you, I didn't see the gravity. Nor did I hear it, nor did I smell it, nor did I taste it, nor did I feel it. Like, the, the, there wasn't some visible or appreciable force. All I saw was I was holding the matchbox car up above the floor and then I let go of the matchbox car and it fell. And then it hit my papers to make a special noise so you could hear it over the, over the like, microphone. In short, gravity is not a force that we can sense. And remember, sense is all we have. We do not have an impression of gravity. What we have is an impression of me holding the matchbox car and you holding whatever piece of crap you're holding and then letting go of the piece of crap and it falling to the floor and possibly making a noise when it hits. But at no point do you actually witness the force of gravity in action. What you are witnessing is two states of affairs. The state of the matchbox car being held above the floor, the state of the matchbox car being on the floor. 
you are connecting them not because of some law that you are witnessing, but instead you are making up a law of gravity to explain the connection between these two states of affairs. Likewise, you say to yourself, the sun will rise tomorrow, not because you are convinced about all of the mathematical processes in place and you have personally witnessed the chain of events, the powers, the energies, the gravity that causes the earth to rotate and so on and so forth. What you are saying is, I wake up every morning and the sun comes up. And then I go to bed and the sun goes down. And then I wake up the next morning and the sun comes up again. And importantly, every single day this has happened. See, for Hume, what he wants to stress here is that all relations concerning matter of fact seem to be founded on the relation of cause and effect, and the causes and effects are discoverable not by reason, but by experience. These are literally two of the key, like, first lines of different paragraphs on page 842 and 843. All reasoning concerning matter of fact is based on cause and effect. All causes and effects are discoverable, discernible, appreciable, not because of reason, not because of proofs, but by experience. You argue that the sun is going to rise tomorrow, that the matchbox car will fall to the floor for the umpteenth time because you have seen it happen a bunch of times beforehand. You have direct experience of this phenomenon occurring over and over and over again. Not the powers that inform the phenomenon. You don't see gravity. You don't experience gravity. You experience state one, things suspended above the floor, state two, thing falling to the floor and hitting the ground. You do not have direct experience of the forces involved in the rotation of the earth. What you do have is direct experience of waking up in the morning and seeing that the sun has risen for the billionth time in a row. Um, this is the entire principle behind literally every matter of fact for Hume. There is no process of reason in here. Reason cannot tell you that the matchbox car is going to fall to the floor. Given only reason and the first initial state, me holding the matchbox car above the floor, for all you know, it's going to like fly up into the air or it's going to like shoot off to the side or maybe I'll let it go and it'll just explode right there in the middle of the air. You have no idea what's going to happen to it. The only reason you have any suspicion that it's going to fall to the floor is because you've seen stuff do this before. You've seen it happen over and over and over again, and as a result, you've internalized that there is this law that causes suspended objects to drop unless there are like intervening circumstances like you're in space. Um, that's the sum total of your knowledge about gravity. Stuff falls when I drop it. It has always been this way, and I assume, but cannot prove, that it will always continue to be this way. Let me give you another example to just sort of try and make this clear, because I know that a lot of people struggle with this one. Let's imagine that you have a coin, like a quarter, and you flip the quarter, and it comes up heads. We all know that the odds that it's going to come up heads again are 50-50. Like, perfectly balanced, or at least, you know, there is probably a little leeway one way or the other. Sure, fine, whatever. It's close to 50-50. 50% of the time, the coin will come up heads. 50% of the time, the coin will come up tails. So you flip the coin a second time, and it comes up heads again. It's two in a row. It does not affect the outcome of the next one, right? 
So the third time you flip the coin, once again, 50-50. It does not change. So you flip the coin and it comes up heads three times in a row. You flip it a fourth time, comes up heads four times in a row, five in a row, six in a row, seven in a row, eight in a row, nine in a row, ten in a row. You flip it a billion times and every single time the coin comes up heads. Now, you could argue, and should, that the coin might be, you know, messed up. Like, maybe this is a trick coin, maybe it's weighted on one side, maybe I'm not flipping it right, maybe I'm, like, a magician and I can, like, trick you or something. Whatever. The important thing here is, is it possible? And the answer has to be yes. When you've got this 50-50 chance, you come up heads a billion times in a row, it's in theoretically possible. Unlikely, yes. Possible, also yes. What I want to emphasize is that when you say that the sun is going to rise tomorrow, how do you know we're not just on a hot streak? How do you know that we just haven't gotten lucky for the last multi-thousand years? How do you know, how can you prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that the sun is going to rise tomorrow? You don't have experience of gravity. You do not have direct knowledge of the forces and powers in play. You do not witness it. You and sciences, scientists before you and ancient peoples before them and everybody who has ever lived on this earth for any serious period of time has assumed, based on their past experience, that the sun is going to rise again tomorrow. That things will continue to be the same as they have been up until this point. But there is no reason there is no proof, there is no foolproof deductive argument to demonstrate that that is the case. What Hume is stressing here, what Hume is basically saying, is that the entirety of matters of fact, everything we know about the universe, is based not on deductive reasoning, but inductive or ampliative reasoning. In a manner of speaking, it is actually all analogy. When you hear a scientist say there is a law of gravity, it calls objects to fall to Earth at roughly 9.8 meters per second squared, what they are actually saying is, I have seen objects fall at this rate many, many times before. And every single time before, it has consistently remained the same over all of these times. And therefore, I will assume that this next time that I do it is like all of the times that came before, and therefore it will be exactly the same result. Notice the like in that argument. Every new experiment will be like the experiments that came before. It is a good argument. Do not get me wrong, and Hume does not want to like poo-poo science here. If anything, Hume is stressing how important science is. But what he wants to stress is what science is actually doing. Science is telling us X has always been the case for all remembered time, thus X will continue to be the case. There is no deductive argument here. There is only an analogical argument. It has always been like this, therefore it will always be like this. But like means that there's still room for something weird to happen. I drop the matchbox car, it explodes. I drop the matchbox car, it just floats in the air, unmoving. I drop the matchbox car and it shoots out the side, breaks my window, and just continues driving off into the sunset. Um, any number of things could happen, there's no reason to believe any one of them could. And importantly for Hume, this also defines our initial experiences. 
He stresses that we do not understand that fire can burn us until we have experienced it burning us. Even if we, this is the first time we've ever run into a fire, we, even if we feel the warmth getting almost painfully hot, we will not know that it is painfully hot based on just observing the fire from a distance. We have to get close enough. We have to feel it ourselves. We have to have the impression for our knowledge to be based on it. We cannot infer that fire is destructive until we have experienced it. We cannot infer that water will drown us until we have seen it happen. We cannot infer that magnets will tug at each other. We cannot infer that gunpowder will explode. All of this stuff can only be figured out by actually seeing it in action. Now again, you can say, but chemical compounds, we can see, you know, like this has a lot of hydrogen in it, so if I light a fire under it, it's going to explode. That's only because you have seen hydrogen explode before. That's only because scientists have previous experience of similar circumstances, which means that once again, we are in analogical argument territory. Once again, we are reasoning based on similarity to past experience. Again, all of science, the sum total of everything we know about the world, everything that has been said in physics, in biology, in chemistry, all of it is based essentially, at the end of the day, on past experience being hypothesized to continue into the future. The laws of the universe will remain the same, is the fundamental assumption underlying all of science. And notice, this is why science breaks down when you start getting to places where the rules don't exist. You ask a scientist, how did we get the Big Bang? They say, I don't know. They say, I don't know, because the rules were different back then. It wasn't consistent. The day before the Big Bang happened, the rules didn't, were completely different than the day after the Big Bang happened. It's basically the same as saying the day before the sun exploded is totally different than the day after the sun exploded. You couldn't predict when it was going to happen in some sense because you assumed that it would always stay the same. That's not necessarily a dangerous assumption. In fact, it's a good assumption. Hume will stress this. But it is, at the end of the day, an assumption. Cause and effect is not something you can observe for Hume. Causes do not have a necessary connection to their effects. Dropping the car does not cause it to drop. We only use that as a shorthand for explaining that the two events always occur together. They are conjoined. They are not caused. Action 1, event 1, is always connected to event 2. I wake up in the morning, the sun has risen. I drop the car, it falls to the ground. Event 1 connected to event 2. The reasoning behind it will always, always, always remain a mystery to us. It is impenetrable. All we can do are gesture at it with ideas. We cannot actually turn it into impressions, and without an impression to base it on, at the end of the day, it is pure conjecture. It is a matter of analogy, a matter of similarities. Now, what Hume stresses here, again, like arbitrariness of all this stuff, he uses tons of examples to make this clear, 
he doesn't say that this is not like this does not render science meaningless like we should all just throw up our hands and just do whatever because you know who knows what's going to happen instead what he's stressing is that we are trying to boil things down to the most like the most simple the most commonly occurring quote causes so he says, hence we may discover the reason why no philosopher who is rational and modest has ever pretended to assign the ultimate cause of any natural operation, or to show distinctly the action of that power which produces any single effect in the universe. It is confessed that the utmost effort of human reason is to reduce the principles productive of natural phenomena to a greater simplicity, and to resolve the many particular effects into a few general causes by means of reasoning from analogy, experience, and observation. We understand that when I drop a matchbox car, it falls to the ground. And when I drop a marker, it falls to the ground. And when I drop my pocket knife, it falls to the ground. And when I drop my stapler, it falls to the ground. And we do not sit around saying, well, apparently, staplers have an innate quality to go flying to the ground, just like matchbox cars and pocket knives and doodads and whatever Instead, what we say is there is a general force that influences all objects that have weight, that have mass. It will cause them all to go towards the ground. We, come, we have a multiplicity of experiences. We attempt to simplify them, generalize them, basically break them down into the simplest possible sets of causes and effects and understand them that way. Again, this is a good thing. This is what science is supposed to be doing. This is why we were thinking of like a whole theory of general relativity or an, a theory of everything for the universe. We want to fully understand everything as simply as we possibly can, to break it down into smaller and smaller, more digestible pieces, more and more general bits so we don't have to keep talking about exceptional cases. Like, yes, I can drop my matchbox car and it falls to the ground, but if I drop my helium balloon, it somehow floats up. Like, yes, this is a weird situation. Why is it a weird situation? because of these general principles um this is not bankrupt it is something that we still need to keep doing the utmost effort of human reason is to reduce these principles nor does he say that this search for cause and effect is nonsense the fact that we can't identify these laws the fact that we cannot actually understand the powers and forces that move the universe does not mean that we should not keep trying to understand these conjunctions recognize the principles even if they are semi-fictional like even the principle of communication of mov movement he attacks if you are sitting at a billiard table and it's the first time you've seen objects move and the person hits the billiard ball and it's about to run into another ball you have no idea what's going to happen maybe it'll fly up into the air maybe it'll explode maybe it'll do whatever you don't know you're not going to know until you see objects communicate motion to each other. One bumps into the other and shifts it. Until that happens, you have no experience, you have no understanding, you don't know what will happen. Only past experience can inform this. What he basically says is this boils down to custom, habit. The great guide of human life, he says, is custom. We only point out a principle of human nature which is universally acknowledged and which is well known by its effects. He is saying we do not use reason when we do science. We use custom. We use habit when we do science. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, he stresses that custom frequently is way better than reason when it comes down to a lot of the things that we have to do on a regular basis. 
Remember, when Descartes is trying to employ reason to prove the existence of the senses and to prove the existence of his body and to prove, like, you know, that dropsy should cause you to not drink, there's this elaborate reasoning in place that gets super complicated and really difficult to understand and comprehend. Reason takes time. Reason is slow. If I am sitting in my apartment and I am trying to reason through whether the fire alarm going off is something that should cause me to leave the house, it may take more time than I am prepared to give to it. It may endanger me further if I am sitting and waiting for a conclusion. Instead, Hume says, habit is a good thing. Like, I should know without even thinking about it, without going through the whole Descartesian process of systematic doubt and reasoning, that when I drop something, it falls to the ground. This is supposed to be super straightforward. It's supposed to be immediate. It's supposed to be something that we grasp and understand and can anticipate just in case like I'm looking up in the sky one day and see a piano hit, coming at me very rapidly. And I'm like, do you think that the piano will stop before it hits me or will it keep coming? Like, no, I do not have time for this. I need to get out of the way of the piano. Um, habit is a greater guide then. Habit doesn't have a problem with the fact that our reasoning is imperfect here, that our arguments are not deductive, that we can't prove that the sun will rise tomorrow. I will continue to operate as though the sun will rise tomorrow because I am accustomed, I am hab habited, I habitually get up in the morning and go about my day as though everything has been like the day before. And that keeps on working for me, you know, until like coronavirus causes us to all stay in our homes all the time and that our habits are, inter are interrupted um that's a good thing that's what science is supposed to do but what hume is stressing here is that that is also the limit of what science can do science cannot give you 100 percent guarantees about anything but we should also not be looking for 100 percent guarantees because again we can't get them if you want a 100% guarantee that the sun is going to rise tomorrow, tough cookies. It's not going to happen. All sorts of weird things could happen. Maybe we will be attacked by an alien race that will blow up our sun. Maybe the sun will like expire of its own accord due to processes that we do not understand that are taking place in the inside of the sun itself. Maybe our Earth will stop rotating for some weird reason. Maybe the batteries ran out. And all of a sudden we're just going to like sit on either the night half or the day half of the Earth. Who's to say? Um, maybe the sun won't rise tomorrow because of something that we did. Like maybe there is in fact a god and we've ticked him off and as a result the sun isn't going to spin or the earth isn't going to spin anymore. We do not know. We can only conjecture. We can only hypothesize. All we can say at the end of the day is up until now the sun has kept rising. We must assume and act as though the sun will continue to keep rising. That's fine. Custom works. More often than reason works, custom works. If I am inclined to just run out of my apartment when the fire alarm goes off, that's way safer than me sitting around and doing my whole Cartesian what, what are my senses telling me? Are my senses reliable? Do I actually exist? Can I trust my senses? Oh wait, do I have to prove that God exists before I can? No. Hume is like, trust your instincts, trust your habits, trust your customs. That's what science does. That's a good thing. Don't worry about it. Alright, let's recap, because again, I know, like, 50 minutes, this is super complicated stuff, a lot of people struggle with it, if you are confused, don't worry about it, like, come pester me on the Q&As, or send me an email, or whatever. Um, 
But here it is, broken down as simply as I can. Two kinds of ideas, ideas and impressions. Impressions are, prim are primary, immediate, urgent, vivid. Ideas, not so much. Three kinds of associations of ideas, resemblance and contiguity and cause and effect. Most importantly, cause and effect is the information behind all matters of fact. Everything we know about the world, everything we know about reality, everything that exists. Our understanding of that whole world our understanding of cause and effect is not due to reason, like a priori Cartesian reason, like I must exist because I am doubting reason, but rather experience, repeated experience over and over and over again. I see the same event accompanied by the same event over and over and over. I can therefore trust that these two events will always be connected, will always be conjoined. That's custom. That's habit. Everything I know about the world is based on the fact that I have prior experience, many prior experiences of what it does before. All of the knowledge that I have composed is not based on rationality, again, in that Cartesian proving 100% deductively that something is the case, but rather that it is the case because it's always been the case and it is most likely going to remain the case. That's the system. If you do not understand it, by all means, stop the lecture now, rewind a while, like hear it from the start and see if we get it better the next time. Um, Reread the chapter, like maybe go online, look at the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, look at a video if you can track one down. Um, like this is going to be super important because literally everything we do with Hume for the next couple weeks is going to be grounded in this philosophical understanding of the way our minds, our knowledge works. Again, all of our knowledge is based not on reason, on experience, custom, habit. All right, take a breath, go get a sandwich, maybe get a drink, we're moving on. So that said, I definitely use the example of the coin flip to indicate that like all of our knowledge is not entirely perfect. It is not 100%. But at the same time, Hume does not buy into the idea of probability. Um, he does not believe in chance. In fact, I think it's kind of like a misstep on his part that he immediately starts off section six by says, though there is no such thing as chance in the world, our ignorance of the real cause of any event has the same influence on the understanding and begets a like species of belief or opinion. He's basically saying there is no chance in the world, but we think that there's chance because we don't fully understand all the causes and effects, which I have no idea why he thinks that there is no chance in the world. There is certainly no evidence in the system to justify that, but that's, that's like a petty critique on my part. Um, he does not answer this question, by the way. What he does want to stress, though, is that everything looks like chance and isn't. There are causes that we don't understand here. That's the point that Hume is trying to make. When we flip a coin and it's 50-50, heads or tails, it's not because there is literally some random number genera generator in some metaphysical alternate reality that determines the outcome of coin flips. What is actually happening is there are a series of causes and effects that we are not aware of. At the very least, like if we had some advanced physicist with a giant supercomputer and he was recording like every tiny minute change of wind and air pressure when I flip the coin, all of the muscles and how I use them in my thumb when I'm flipping it, the particular weight distribution of the coin, like if we calculated every possible factor, 
we could theoretically come to a conclusion that the coin will in fact come up heads or tails. Like we could theoretically figure that out. Science could tell us based on our understanding of, again, these laws based on experience. It's not random. For Hume, there is no randomness. When you roll a die, same thing. You Sure, you can absolutely like calculate all of the weight distribution of the die and the the like trajectory at which you throw it like in theory we could figure out exactly how the die is going to land before it actually lands given control of over these of all of these factors but we call it random because we don't do that like we do not specifically go out of our way to calculate every single permutation like given our muscle control our like air pressure all of that Likewise, if you were playing blackjack in a casino, you cannot tell what the next card is going to be. That's because of a failure to recognize all of the various factors involved when the dealer shuffles the deck or when the cards are manipulated in his hands. Um, it's not chance, but we call it chance. And this is something that Hume is also going to do fairly frequently. He's going to redefine our terms. He wants us to be very conscious of our language here. Again, he doesn't have a problem with the term cause and effect. He will continue to use the terms cause and effect. What he wants to stress is that we talk about cause and effect like it's necessary, like it's 100% deductive. And he wants to say, no, it's not that. It's never that. Cause and effect, insofar as we understand it, is literally us saying, this has always followed this. Therefore, when A happens, B will happen. Um, every time that A happens, B happens immediately afterwards, therefore A causes B. That's all cause means. That's all causality is. Um, likewise, when we talk about probability or chance, what we're saying is we do not fully understand all of the particular causes that are going involved, all of the nuances that are affecting the outcome of this event. So if you look at page 854, the case is the same with the probability of causes as that with chance. There are some causes which are entirely uniform and constant in producing a particular effect, and no instance has ever yet been found of any failure or irregularity in their operation. Fire has always burned, water has always suffocated, every human creature. No exceptions. The production of motion by impulse and gravity is a universal law which has up to now admitted of no exception. But there are other causes which have been found more regular and uncertain. Nor has rhubarb always per proved a purge, or opium a soporific, to everyone who has taken these medicines. Some stuff happens in ways that we can't exactly predict. Some medicines affect different people different ways, maybe because you have allergies, maybe because your blood is configured in a different way slightly. There are lots and lots of different little tiny causes that are involved in the procedure of certain effects that we can't always anticipate. So stuff is sometimes not unpredictable, but not as we predicted. Sometimes you give somebody an antibiotic and they break out in hives and die. That's not great, we probably want to control that and avoid it whenever possible, but sometimes it does happen because bodies are super complicated and you don't exactly know what's going to happen every time you administer a certain drug or a certain chemical. Sometimes, like, especially with, like, interactions of drugs and chemicals, like, you better believe pharmacists are super careful to avoid certain drug interactions. There's a reason for this, because we've seen what happens when you let those 
bonus causes start influencing the outcome of events. That means that we typically call it chance. It's not chance. We just call it chance. Likewise, if you think of the weather, as much as we are pretty good at predicting the outcome of the weather, nonetheless, there is still some ambiguity. Weather patterns are really chaotic. There's a lot of factors to be taken into consideration. Sometimes the weatherman says, we're getting snow tomorrow, and it blows a different direction because of something he couldn't anticipate, and instead it doesn't snow tomorrow. It happens. Um, what we That doesn't mean that the world is not governed by necessary laws. That does not mean that we are like... At the whims of fate, everything is random. What it means is we don't fully appreciate things. That's all it comes down to. Now, the next thing he wants to talk about is necessity. Now, again, we talked a little bit about necessity when we talked about Aquinas. The whole, like, necessity versus contingency. Things that must happen versus things that could not happen. Um, now Hume wants to tackle this. And again, we have a definition that he is going to redefine. Because again, under these circumstances, there is nothing necessary in the way that it's typically rationally understood. If something must exist, if something could not be otherwise than it is, um, if there is some event, some action, some person, some being, some thing that must be the case and cannot be otherwise, we could never know. We could never be aware of this fact. Um, there is no observable necessity, no observable power, no observable force that governs the world in any way. Like again, we say gravity, what we are actually talking about is observing multiple things or happening in succession over and over and over again. There is no necessity that when I drop the matchbox car, it falls to the ground. What there is, is conjunction. This thing happens, and this thing happens, and as long as anyone can remember, those things always happen together. A and is always followed by B. Now, he stresses this by stressing the things that we would most likely consider necessary, the powers and forces that we are most familiar with specifically the operation of human bodies, um, and for that matter, human minds. Like, if there is a case where we say, yes, I can perceive the causes, it's when the cause is me. Like, I can wave my hand in front of my face, and I'm like, I caused that. I made that happen. The hand necessarily waved about in space because I willed it to be the case. But what Hume stresses here is that that's not necessary. Like, we actually don't have any freaking clue how it is that our mind, our consciousness, our will has any effect on the body. Um, he says on page 857, First, is there any principle in all nature more mysterious than the union of soul, meaning mind, with body? by which a supposed spiritual substance acquires such an influence over a material one that the most refined thought is able to actuate the grossest matter. How do we do that? Like, think about it. How can you, a consciousness, a mind in the Cartesian sense, a thinking thing, have anything to do with your hands, feet, body, whatever? Like, really? Could you, in fact, explain how it is that you tell your hand to move? 
No, you just do it. Like, you just wave your hand around. It's not that complicated. Except that we don't understand it. It's so uncomplicated that it is invisible to us. Like, yes, we can talk about bodies until we're blue in the face. All right, so you have this mind, huh? That's great. What I'm really detecting is that your brain is sending signals through your nerves to your muscles, and your muscles are contracting and moving around, and that causes your hand to move around. Great. How do you square that with the fact that I am a thinking thing? How do you make that fit with the idea that I have these series of memories and experiences that go through a long period of time, 30 years in my case, 20-some in yours, without, at the end of the day, just throwing up your hands and saying, Bleh. like, yes, psychologists can tell us all sorts of things about the way the brain works. They can also tell us all sorts of things about how the mind works but they don't really have a whole lot to say about the way that the mind and brain interact. And what I mean here is that I don't care how many microscopes, how many MRI machines, how many electromagnetic devices, how carefully the brain is mapped or the human genome or whatever. At the end of the day, you're, all of that observation is just falling into the same trap that Hume has already set for you. It is basically all boiling down to, well, I observe that X happens, and when X happens, Y always happens. These nerves all fire, and therefore the hand moves. It's still not a necessary connection. You do not see why the muscles contract when an electrical current goes through them, except insofar as you say, but they always do. Once again, experience over and over and over again, habit, custom, that's the guide here. And importantly, the mind, if it exists, is not observable. It is not something you can see. There is a vast divide between the brain that psychologists observe and the mind that therapists communicate with. It is a complete distance. And even if it was mapped perfectly, even if we had like this great map of the human brain, it's like, this is where memory is, and this is where speech is, and this is where, like motor functioning is and this is where this is the part of the brain that controls the lungs like great fascinating if you damage that part of the brain apparently i cannot actually breathe anymore awesome good to know but what does that have to do with me sitting in my apartment thinking to myself thinking about like what am i going to have for dinner tomorrow what does that say about free will at all can it say anything about free will? Can it, in fact, speak to the fact that I have my own motivations? Can it, in fact, connect the fact that I can, like, think of Christmas with my family when I was 10 and then act accordingly? At some point, once again, no matter how good your science is, there are causes that are just going to be invisible. There are forces that you cannot observe. The connection between, I think I will move my hand, and me moving my hand all around, is completely invisible. We can observe only certain stops along the way. We can only observe certain phenomena and imply that there is a connection. We cannot determine a grade A cause with deductive certainty. Um, as he stresses, were we empowered by a secret wish to remove mountains or control the planets in their orbit, this extensive authority would not be more extraordinary nor more beyond our comprehension than just the fact that we can move a body with our mind. Um, 
the fact that I can move my hand is as miraculous as me being able to move the solar system with the power of my mind. Like, how, how does that work? Every act of the body is an act of telekinesis. It is an act of mind over matter in some weird and inexplicable way. Unless we decide to, like, reject the possibility of the mind altogether, which does not seem right at all, um, and just imply that, like, all of our bodies are just complex computers reacting to complex stimuli over a long period of time, like, only if we boil it down that far do we end up rejecting that. And even then, we end up with a, a being so complex that it might as well be uninterpretable. Um, the idea that we have free will and the idea that we don't have free will are equally difficult to parse. And Hume will stress that later, but we won't be reading that particular section. Um, so once again, the body is completely unknown to us. There's a lot that we cannot control, like the fact that our stomachs digest food or the fact that our heart keeps beating. There is a bunch of stuff that we do not understand how we control, like moving my hand around. There's a bunch of stuff that just doesn't seem to make any sense whatsoever, except through, again, experience. How do I know that I can move my hand around when I think a certain way? By moving my hand around when I think a certain way. How do I control myself walking when I walk across the parking lot to take out the recycling? Because I have done it so many times before. I've figured it out through trial and error and no rationality, no science, no nothing. When I was two years old, I was gradually putting the pieces together and I figured it out. And that's literally all of the knowledge I have of that process. If you try and walk up and down the stairs while concentrating on every movement of your body, you will probably trip, fall, and die. It's better to let custom habit instinct take over for you. But what he is stressing is we cannot identify the force. There is no necessity between you thinking I am going to walk down the stairs and you walking down the stairs, except insofar as we've experienced it a bunch of times before, just like he said. This, too, is a matter of custom, habit, pure analogical reasoning. Us saying the same things will happen the way that they always have until one day, you know, like something gets in the, in the mix of your nerves or you have an aneurysm and suddenly it stops working and now you have a new rule set that you need to become accustomed to. But what he also wants to stress here is that this also informs this understanding of God. Later in section 7, um, this is around page 859, he stresses that the reason why like, the fact that we cannot understand any of these causes and effects has led a lot of philosophers to sort of conjecture that, like, nothing is caused. That everything di happens directly at the will of God alone. Um, there is a Arabic philosopher named Al-Ghazali during the medieval period who believes this. He's like, literally nothing happens without God specifically going through all the motions. Like, when you sit around waving your hand, what's actually happening is you are sending a message to God. God is sending a message to your body. God is making your hand move around. He is only doing what you say because of his will. Like, he wants to do it. You don't actually command him. He just does it to, I don't know, mess with you, I guess. Likewise, more recently, and probably more familiar to Hume, is a guy named Nicholas Malbranche, who believes exactly the same thing, pretty much. Like, they believe it for different reasons, but the same ultimate, like, picture of the universe is created. So he says, 
Um, this is about halfway down that big paragraph on 859. They pretend that those objects which are commonly denominated causes are in reality nothing but occasions, and that the true and direct principle of every effect is not any power or force in nature, but a volition of the supreme being, who wills that such particular objects should forever be conjoined with each other. That is... We don't have any say in the process. Gravity is not a natural, completely apathetic force. Rather, every instance I have of me dropping the car and it hitting the ground is God literally pulling the car onto the ground and causing it to hit. Now, Hume doesn't like this. As much as it seems to dovetail with Hume's philosophy, as much as it seems like, well, if we don't have universal laws, then why not just say that God causes everything? The trouble that Hume has is this posits a god and we have no experience to justify this particular reach if you look at page 860 the column break paragraph like it starts in the first column and goes into the second if we would have a more philosophical confutation of this theory perhaps the two following reflections may suffice first it seems to me that this theory of the universal energy and operation of the supreme being is too bold ever to carry conviction with it to a man sufficiently apprised of the weakness of human reason and the narrow limits to which it is confined in all its operations. Though the chain of arguments which conduct to it were ever so logical, there must arise a strong suspicion, if not an absolute assurance, that it has carried us quite beyond the reach of our faculties when it leads to a conclusion so extraordinary and so remote from common life and experience. We arrived in fairyland long before we have reached the last steps of our theory, and there we have no reason to trust our common methods of argument or to think that our usual analogies and probabilities have any authority. Our line is too short to fathom such immense abysses. What he is saying here is the natural conclusion of what he has been saying all along. If all of our knowledge about the world is based on our experience, then we cannot have any knowledge of anything that is beyond our experience. If we do not have any experience of heaven, hell, God, angels, demons, like de deities, like in this like in the Greek pantheon or the Roman pantheon or any of the other religious systems, if we cannot have that experience or if we do not have that experience, except in like isolated instances, then there is no way for us to form the custom or habit necessary to call it knowledge. Knowledge is grounded in repetition, experience, the same things happening over and over and over again, and we don't understand that with God. He's not saying that God doesn't exist. He's saying that there is literally no possible way to argue that God exists. There is no mechanism of rationality, no scientific proof that can demonstrate God's existence or non-existence. As he says, we arrive in fairyland way before we get to God. And in fairyland, none of our usual experiences, none of our usual arguments, none of our usual experience via to custom, to like arguments about the world have any bearing. God is so far beyond what we know and understand that we cannot make any conclusions about him. What Hume is saying here, and again, this is just here and he has other things to say elsewhere which complicate the situation. He is outlining what would probably be called strong agnosticism. Not just God may or may not exist, but rather there is no possible way to determine whether or not God exists. 
God's existence is unprovable. Skepticism necessitates that we back off of that conclusion, true or false. That's his hard claim here. And you will notice, again, we're making a direct attack on Descartes. Descartes is saying, we understand where all of our ideas come from. We have this one idea that we can't understand. Hume is like, shut up. First of all, we can come up with this idea on our own. See section two. Second of all, if God does exist, what makes you think that our rationality about our ideas has any bearing here at all? Likewise, all of Aquinas's proofs. All right, so stuff moves. Not everything that moves is moved by something else, except this can't go on forever. Therefore, there must be some being that moved it and was itself unmoved. Hume is like, all right, so we've already left science behind then. You started with the rule, nothing that moves is moved, uh, is can move itself. It's always moved by something else. And the next word out of your mouth is, except for this one thing. Hume is like, all right, we're already out of our realm of experience. We are already out of the realm of science. Stop reasoning because we're already too far gone. God is not something we can demonstrate. He is definitely not something we can prove deductively. And at best, science can only tell us about God insofar as God does things repeatedly in a way that we can predict and experience. And yet the whole point of God is that we cannot predict or experience him. He is unfathomable. His typical demonstrations are miracles, which we will attack in the next section. Therefore, he is beyond our knowledge and understanding. We cannot make conclusions about him. We cannot make logical arguments, arguments about him. God is, by definition, beyond our understanding, our reason, our experience. And if it's beyond our experience, it's beyond our knowledge. Period. Full stop. The end. All right. That was a long one, and I feel like I was going at a giant stretch the whole time, so, like, I hope that like you've followed along and been able to keep up if not this might be a lecture worth listening to twice um again we are going to be dealing with hume next week as well and if you don't have that basic understanding of the system it's just going to get worse so you know reread two through five a couple more times listen to the lecture another time or at least the first half of the lecture another time if it helps if you still have questions definitely catch me in the q a um and i hope that this is also blowing your mind like I honestly hope that this makes you think twice about science um, because like any good scientist should admit the same principles that Hume is talking about here. Like more than many of the philosophers that we have talked about in class, I support Hume's opinion on like knowledge and science especially. Science has to recognize that there are some things beyond its ken. If it does not, then it falls into the same trap that Descartes and like Plato are warning about that it's claiming to know more than it actually does. Science assumes universal laws. That's what Hume is saying here. Science assumes tomorrow will be like today. It breaks down when that fails to be the case. And most importantly, where philosophy is grounded oftentimes in a priori reasoning, deductive argumentation, 100% guarantees one way or the other, science never can. It will always be based on the rigor of its experimentation, the body of data available to it, the sheer number of experiences scientists have shared and explained. Again, hope you enjoyed this discussion. Hope it's causing you to think about this. 
if you have any questions, come catch me, and I'll probably be recording the next lecture either today or in the very near future, so we will have more Hume available for you very soon. Anyway, bye! Hope the sun rises tomorrow! <laughs>